Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Into the uncharted, distant waters of the difficult person. So on the map is like the place where the dragons are at the edge and the sea serpents and like you've been afraid to go there because you don't know what's going to happen to you. And it's interesting to think of this way that we've been doing it, you know, as like this mandala, you know, of ourselves here in the center, those closest to us we love, friends, the vast area of neutral people, and then the outer ring of the difficult people. Which, as I said, um, I think earlier, that sometimes the difficult people seem actually much more intimate than even the friends. Uh, Those who are particularly difficult to us actually occupy our thoughts a lot. We're actually very intimate with them. Like there's a a quality of like, uh, with a beloved, it's like, oh, I think about them all the time. Except in this case, it's with negative (laughs) thoughts and intentions. And part of this process of going through metta is breaking down these barriers that we have. You know, who's in which circle? And who can we actually have a sense of general well-wishing towards in our lives? We spend a lot of energy managing this mandala. But this mandala is actually kind of a fictitious thing. And if you think back in your life to earlier different periods, you can see that basically we bring this mandala with us and then sort of overlay it on our lives every time we land in a new situation. So let's say when you started school, as early as you could remember, kindergarten, first grade, something like that. Then you have your mandala there and it's like, my best friend, the teacher I like, the teacher who scares me, the kids who are friendly to me, the kids who I ignore, the bullies out there. (laughs) Then you graduate, you go to a different school, maybe you go to middle school, boom. Different individuals seemingly, but actually the mandala is pretty intact, isn't it? Like these different characters appear. So someone else has taken the place of the difficult person. Someone else is the best friend. Uh, Someone else is the one who you're not sure about. And then this goes on and on and on. And you can see you move to a new neighborhood, then you get that. You move to your new, new job. Very quickly we populate our mandala with these different people. So this is one reason why it's actually helpful to learn to deal with all the different categories and to deal with the difficult person. Or sometimes in the classical um, translations of the suttas, they call them the enemy, which sounds a lot more dramatic. Because usually our solution to the difficult person or the enemy is that they must change their behavior, move away, pass away, something, right? Yeah, you know this is honestly the truth. And then, uh, and then it'll be all okay. Like the problem is them. And if they were to move or change or die, then my world would be filled with love again. <laughs> they are the obstacle to metta, right? It's them, their, their life, their behavior. 
So, but as you see this mandala appearing over and over again in these different situations, it's helpful to notice that because you can see, like, oh, maybe it actually isn't about them in some way. You know, maybe it's maybe it's actually in here. So we can start to see the ways in which we are actually creating our worlds in this way. So it comes from our own hearts and minds. We build it and then we live in that. You know, we live in the prisons of our ideas in so many different ways and don't see through it at all. So when you're in that period, like you know, when you're in grade school, you are totally in it, right? Like you're very personally uh, engaged and that's your whole world. You have no idea there's going to be a different world after that. It's like, this is it. As if like you're going to spend all your existence there. Right? Then you move to a different world, and then it's like middle school. Like, that's it. This is, this is the universe. And you can't imagine the next thing. And then so on and so forth. And, you know, it sounds funny, because now we can look back and say, like, oh, yeah, that was just a period of time, and you know, it's almost sometimes sort of poignantly laughable, some of the relationships we had and what we were worried about. Uh, but you're actually doing it right now, too. <laughs> you know? You're doing the same thing, like, in your life right now. We all are, you know. So it's, it's just helpful to get that perspective to sort of see through that in some way. So in many ways, the path of practice, I think, is one of um, growing up, you know, of maturing, so we have reached a certain amount of adult physical maturation thanks to different people teaching us and feeding us and good fortune and uh, good enough health so far. But really there's this whole other journey. There's a continuation of evolution, uh, of growing in the mind and heart uh, that is really kind of where the action is on the game board of life, I would say. So continuing to raise ourself, and in this way engaging with the aspects that become difficult, seeing through the things that seem like obstacles. So the Dharma is the teachings of the truth of the way things are. So it wasn't something that the Buddha kind of concocted and then tried to convince people of. It was actually the teachings of how things really are that he was able to see through developing his own awareness and concentration, and which we all actually are also able to see when we pay attention and when we develop our practice. So I wanted to share with you some reflections, particularly on working with this category of the difficult person uh, or the enemy, uh, as I found it through my own practice uh, in this process of trying to grow up. So the, the category is, you know, we, we introduce sort of the mildly difficult person, which is a good way to start with it. But it really goes to uh, real extremes that the Buddha is saying, for the teachings of liberation, I want you to develop a heart filled with metta in every single circumstance. And so here's as strong as it will, will be, for example. So he's instructing his uh, followers. So monks, even if bandits were to savagely sever you, limb by limb, with a double-handed saw. Even then, whoever of you harbors ill will at heart would not be upholding my teaching. Monks, even in such a situation, you should train yourself thus. Neither shall our minds be afflicted by this, 
nor for this matter shall we give vent to evil words, but we will remain full of concern, pity, with a mind of love, and not give in to hatred. On the contrary, we shall live projecting thoughts of metta to those very persons, making them as well as the whole world the object of our thoughts of metta. Thoughts that have grown great, exalted, and measureless. We shall dwell radiating these thoughts, void of hostility and ill will. It is in this way, monks, that you should train yourself. So he's setting the high bar. So even when you are actively being sawed limb from limb, (laughs) still, even then, (laughs) continue your practice, he's saying. (laughs) Continue your practice. And I was actually very inspired by this um, when... I heard it at first. You know, it sounds kind of crazy. It's very, like, not what you expect uh, the teaching to be in some way. It's not what you expect to be expected to do. Like, really? Even in that circumstance? Um, But I remember when I first heard this, I was very inspired by it. And um, so I actually memorized a version of this passage. And I could see, like, no one is sawing me limb from limb. But there still are these times in which I get very activated and uh, I feel hatred towards someone. So at the time, uh, I remember I was doing a lot of practice and I was actually living in Sri Lanka then in some monasteries and things. And I'd come back and visit with my family. And my family was really not happy about what I was up to in my life. So, you know, I just finished college and I was supposed to go get a job or graduate school or something. And I seemed most interested in doing meditation practice, like all the time. Uh, And it was very puzzling to them why so in some attempt to be helpful, they would try to um, lecture me, basically, on uh, like why I was doing the wrong thing with my life and why I should do something else. So I remember this one particular uncle of mine who was uh, very engaged in this um, campaign. Uh, like, <laughs> he uh, like would pick me up, you know, I'd have to go to something downtown in Colombo, and he would pick me up and then um, bring me back to his house, which was a nice thing to do. But he would, you know, I would be that thus entrapped in the car for a lecture, you know, during this period, you know, this kind of situation. Uh, and so the usual behavior I would engage in would be like to try and argue with him and convince him why what I was doing was good and why it made sense. And it wasn't making any dent whatsoever and just get more and more angry and agitated. So I decided the next time that he did this, I would actually just repeat this passage in my mind, you know. So, so he started lecturing me. So monks, even if bandits were to savagely sever your limb from limb with a saw, uh, instead one should abide with a heart imbued with loving kindness, vast, sublime, and immeasurable like the sky, wishing well to all beings. Uh, And it actually kind of worked, I have to say. (laughs) Partly because, you know, clearly he wasn't sawing me limb from limb, you know? Like it was actually just a lecture in the car. Uh, So it put into perspective what otherwise I was receiving, like with the same kind of affront, as if... Someone was sawing me limb from limb, you know. And then also, actually, just the, the, it, it is inspiring language. So, you know, imbue with loving kindness, vast, sublime, and immeasurable like the sky, wishing well to all beings. So it both put into perspective when my mind started to crunch down. You know, it was like, oh, this is not vast, immeasurable like the sky, you know. Pulling, right? uh, so somehow, like, it, it, it kept me in a relatively good space for this long car ride, which was usually very um, contentious. And then... I remember at the end of this, I, he wasn't used to how I was dealing with him, and he said, I hope I'm not annoying you. you know? <laughs> Which he never asked me or never cared about before. But actually, from that place of the heart, I said, no, it's okay. You know? uh, but it really changed my relationship to what was happening in this way.
So this is different experiments that I've done with, the, with metta through my practice. And you know, I continued practicing there and eventually came back to the U.S. and got a job. And um, I started playing... Uh, uh, I lived in Boston and I was playing uh, flag football, I think it was. Um, and I remember one New Year's Eve there was a party of my flag football league people. So it was like a New Year's party. So I went there with my friends and um, I think I was the only one who wasn't drinking at the party. It's New Year's Eve and... Uh, it's always this strange situation because then you perceive things that other people are not perceiving. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so this guy came into the party and he was actually being kind of creepy and like a little off. And so I tried to tell people like, do you know that guy? Like, what's he doing here? And um, uh, nobody was really like paying attention to me or what I was saying or that much. So then, um, you know, I was was deep in my metta practice. So I was like, I will approach him with the heart of metta, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and basically, I will, uh, so, so I did actually approach him, and I, I did approach him with metta, and I said, like, hey, like, uh, I introduced myself, and I said, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I just, he was a little bit drunk, too, so he was like, oh, I just wandered down here. So I was like, oh, you know, it's actually not that kind of a party, like, it's kind of a, a closed party, so probably it's good if you go, you know. But I said this in a very kind way, so somehow he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so... Uh, so he actually started leaving, and I kept sending metta to him. But then I remember, sort of three-quarter way down the hallway to the door, suddenly uh, the ego arose again. You know, I was like, it was really a, a sense of self around sending metta. You know, it's like I'm using metta to you know, <laughs> get this guy to leave the party. And actually, in that moment, it was sort of like the spell was broken. He turned around and he grabbed me. And then, fortunately, at that point, other people sort of came to and uh, helped with that situation. Uh, so I think I'd been inspired by that story of the drunk elephant that the string told. You know, I was like, oh, I can use metta too. Um, but you actually can't use metta in a manipulative way. You know, like, uh, like unconditional love doesn't mean, it means you can tell people different things, but it doesn't mean like, oh, I will use that to kick someone out, you know. Um, so I learned from that as well as, you know, I realized I was doing these different experiments with metta and how it uh, was in the world, but... Um, I think as I, I grew older, I started to see, like, you don't really have to look for trouble, you know. Like, life itself will deliver difficult situations to you. <laughs> and then you get to see, like, how your practice serves you and how this serves with difficult situations, difficult people. You know, where, where, is this, uh, where does this meet the actual world? Not in meditation, not in retreat, but where there's uh, human beings who are being difficult with you. So one of the ways in which I have noticed this um, in my life is something that is uh, often termed microaggressions. So as a woman of color, as a queer woman of color, there are ways in which like, I'm constantly getting messages that are like, you are not as worthy of respect as someone else. And this happens to many different kinds of people in different ways, you know, just through uh, sort of small interactions, body language, uh, verbal and body language that happens to us in the world. And it's actually not personal at all. Like racism, sexism, heterosexism is so not personal, and yet it's very painful to receive. So small things like uh, I went to a uh, Jamba Juice near my gym just before coming here, and uh, it was near closing time, and someone asked me what I wanted, and I said carrot juice. And uh, the person said in this very uh, aggressive tone, like, no, you cannot have carrot juice. I was like... Oh, okay. And then, um, and and then they were like, "Oh, you know, we're cleaning the juicer, so uh, 
it's too much work to put it back together again. So it's actually not so much of a problem, but I was like, oh, that's the tone that you used in that was unnecessarily rude. And if I was standing here like an older man in a suit, like, would you have spoken to me in this way? Uh, so I find this to be the case, and I find the metta practice actually very helpful in dealing with these kinds of small aggressions that happen uh, in life. And it's not like there's one script for how to deal with this, right? And I know everyone deals with this in some way or another in different ways, right? So I'll give you a few more examples, and I probably give you these examples because they're fairly mundane examples, and... Uh, you know, you may or may not relate to like drunken elephants coming down the street at you, but like the thing about people being difficult with you or rude to you is something that most people can relate to. Right? And how, how is your heart in that situation? Fix my ear here. So some of the benefits of metta. Uh, I don't know if we have read this list. Have you read this benefits of metta list? I don't think so. Okay. So this is a classical list of benefits of metta. So people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. The devas love them. This is like the angel spirits and animals love them. They will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire don't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in the heavenly realms. So uh, it's inspiring also, if, that, if you believe that that's true. Uh, the part about the protection, though, you know, whether or not you believe the poisons and weapons, it is actually a protective practice. So the Buddha actually taught this practice to the monks and nuns uh, at a point at which they went into the woods and they got spooked where they were sent to practice. And they came back to him and said, like, oh, don't make us practice there, it's spooky. And he said, uh, like, no, I want you to go back there, but I want you to actually do this chant, which is the metta chant, and that will protect you. So what does that protect you from? It protects your own heart from affliction. And then also, as you exude this sense of metta, it does protect from aggression in some way. So another small microaggression story. So I was on an airline, United Airlines, flying, um, and uh, you know, the guy coming by, the drink cart steward guy, and uh, he passed me by for some reason. So then I got up and just tapped him on the shoulder and said, like, oh, can I have a drink? Uh, and uh, again, he turned around, he whipped around, and he was really rude to me. He was like, get back to your seat, you know, something like that. And I was like, oh, he said something else that I don't remember, but it was totally unnecessarily um, condescending and rude. And I sat down, and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, you can have it, with microaggressions, you can't really prove it, because they're usually not like, woman of color, sit down, right? <laughs> um, but I was like, you know what, this happens often enough that I know that... Um, you know, basically, like, he's in a bad mood for whatever reason, and then it's hard to, to keep it together if you're in a bad mood, right? But you do for certain people, and you don't for certain people. So I was like, yeah, I think he's not keeping it together for me based on who I am, and it's not cool. And uh, I also feel like I have enough agency to address these things, and even if I'm not going to have an ongoing relationship with him, I feel like, yeah, this is important for this person to realize you need to treat people with respect, Right? regardless of what mood you're in, regardless of how much power you perceive them to have, or how much money, or anything, right? So I asked the next uh, guy who came, like, what was the name of that uh, steward there? So he told me. Uh, but then he must have gone to tell the steward also. So basically I was going to complain uh, when I got back. But I was like, all right, you know. 
So then this guy who I complained about came back and squatted down, I was in the aisle, and started yelling at me uh, in the aisle of the airplane. Uh, like, you know, who do you think you are? Why are you asking for my name? I didn't do anything wrong, so on. And uh, I said, well, I'll ask you for a drink, and I felt like you were very rude to me. And he was like, no, I wasn't, you know. So I was like, well, can you please not yell at me now? He's like, I'm not yelling at you, you know. <laughs> like, you know these conversations, right? Or I know them way too well. So uh, the interesting thing was he was uh, basically trying to intimidate me, which I often find to be sort of the case in these interactions. But um, I think the practice of metta, uh, equanimity, basically I was not being intimidated. And it's really puzzling to people when this happens, you know? I mean, this guy was larger than me, and, you know, he's in my face, and neither was I being aggressive back to him, like, nor uh, was I being intimidated. So it's that steadiness, you know, that protection of heart. So, like, his aggression was not taking root in me. And I could see him being a little nonplussed by that, you know? Like, he, he wanted me either to fight back or really he wanted me to be intimidated and back off. So eventually, I come, he, you know, he left and went back. I was like, you know, it sounds like we have different ideas about what happened. Like, I was actually not going to fight with him about it there. Uh, so he left, and then the other guy actually brought me the drink. And, uh, you know, it was... So it's not a big deal. Like, I'm not going to get a Nobel Prize, right, for this uh, episode. Um, but these are actually the things that happen to us in our lives. And it's like, how do we meet this? Like, a daily aggression that happens. Uh, how do we meet this with courage, uh, with integrity... Uh, you know, not fighting that person, making them feel bad, but also just standing your ground. And at that point, you know, I wasn't overtly doing my metta practice. Like, I wasn't saying the phrases and stuff like that, but I could feel the strength of heart coming in when I needed it. So that's why practice is helpful. You know, it's called practice. Like, you're practicing here, kind of in the lab, and trust. You know, some people had, had asked me, like, oh, how do I know this is doing anything? My own experience is like trust that is fortifying your heart and your practice will come when you need it. Yeah. Your practice will come to you in the world when you need it at different times. Um, so then onwards in the, these stories, uh, I, yeah, I've been dar- teaching as a Dharma teacher for some time now and um, you would think then that of course I'm subject to greater respect. I'm sitting up here, right? <laughs> get to ring the bell, so. <laughs> right. uh, but alas, not so. <laughs> and actually, you know, the, the Dharma teaching is also that uh, we are all subject to these things. We are all subject to pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So actually, no matter who you are, no matter how wealthy you get, how famous you get, uh, how many books you write or books are written about you, still, some people are going to like what you do and some people are not. Some people are going to think you're great, some people are not. And in fact, actually, probably the more you put yourself out there, the more you're going to get both, <laughs> both sides. So, uh, another story of, uh, of metta. So, I started teaching at San Francisco Insight. Um, and some of you know, uh, Eugene Cash is the main teacher there. Uh, and he had a, a bike accident. So for a while I was uh, substituting for him for some months while he was recovering. And once I was on my way to the Dharma uh, talk, uh, so I was driving out of my house in the mission, my apartment, and I live in sort of a small alley which uh, has a Thai restaurant next to it. And the guys who work in the restaurant sometimes hang out smoking cigarettes and you know stuff like that. 
So this time this guy had parked his car in the small alley, which actually makes it difficult, if not impossible, to get out. So one of the waiters there, so I asked him, like, can you move your car? And uh, he was like, no, no, you can get by, just go, right? He was, he was a bit lazy, I think, to move the car. And I was like, no, I think it's gonna, they're going to hit each other. The mirrors are going to hit. And he was like, no, no, just go, just go. So I was like, all right. So, uh, and so this car, also I should say, is a Mercedes um, convertible. So he's a nice car. Uh, my car is a 1995 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> so, um, so I was like, all right. So then I started to drive by, and actually the mirrors do hit each other. Um, but his mirror is on a spring, which my 95 Corolla does not have. Uh, so, you know, it springs back and then it springs forward. So I was like, all right, I guess he knew it had that feature. I actually had never seen that cars do that, so I was like, oh, that's cool, right? Um, so then I got to the end of the alley and I'm sitting there and then I suddenly feel my car like shaking like this. And I look in the mirror and the guy is uh, out there basically kicking and beating on my car. And the first thing that occurred to me in my mind is like, oh, it's like first-class car, but not first-class mind, you know? <laughs> Uh, and this really, you know, I feel like this becomes more and more apparent to me as I, um, you know, attend to this level of, of human existence is like, um, there can be people even like, you know, movie stars or something who are like so beautiful and toned and stuff, but then, you know, what comes out of their mouth, the, the mind states that emerge are just not in sync with the physical reality at all. Uh, so same with this guy, like the car is sort of like a body, which obviously he was very identified with. Uh, and so he was dealing with his uh, anger in this way, in this sort of violent way. So I actually stopped the car, and I got out of the car, uh, and uh, was like, hey, like, what's going on? Like, we're neighbors, you know? Like, uh, and in this kid time, it didn't actually move him. Like, he was still just furious, and he was like, I'm going to call the police, and, um, you know, you damaged my car. And you know, his car was actually parked right under a no parking sign. So I was like, you can call the police, but they're going to tow your car. Cause, you know, um, so he continued to be like very agitated. And I, I continued to be like, we're neighbors. Like, let's talk about this. Like, can't we get along? You know? And uh, eventually he was so violent and aggressive, actually his friend had to sort of drag him back into the restaurant like this. You know, he was going to like take swings at me uh, for this which is not recommended to do to take swings at Dharma teachers on the way to uh, <laughs> Dharma talks. I actually feel happy that he didn't do that because it's not you know, unrecommended karmic activity to, uh, <laughs> to do this. Um, but actually, like his, his friend, the other waiters were actually, I think, moved by the way I was dealing with him. And also a little bit surprised because, you know, like I'm five foot three woman. Like, you know, when some guy is getting violent, uh, it's not necessarily the thing you would think to do is like get out of the car. But I felt like I had enough just presence and wanting to connect with him. Uh, somehow, like, again, I think that sense of metta was, uh, gave a sense of courage, you know, and, and standing my ground in that way. Which doesn't mean like if there's something more dangerous that I wouldn't leave, right? Um, you don't have to be smart about it too. But in this case, like there was a sense of courage. Like I wasn't afraid of that and I wanted to engage with that. And I was like, oh, come on, you know. But I wasn't actually hating him either. And I think that's important. Like, my sense of him wasn't like, I hate you for doing this. It was just more like a child throwing a tantrum, you know. So I'll give you one, one more uh, brief incident from this. So this was actually a different night when I was at San Francisco Insight. Um, so the the... 
Buddha said at one point, um, you know, if someone gives a gift, but the intended receiver did not accept it, where will the gift go to? And uh, the person who's teaching says, oh, it'll, it'll remain with the giver. And the Buddha says, yes, that's th- that same is true. If someone approaches you with anger, resentment, they try to give it to you and you don't accept it, then it remains with them. So this is what we're doing with metta, is actually training ourselves not to uh, receive this, not to take this on. And this is the unconditional part of metta. It's not like, I will love you as long as you say nice things to me. You know, I will maintain goodwill as long as you uh, pay homage to me in this way. You know, it actually is like, regardless, I'm going to do that. And the regardless is not just for the other person's sake, it really is for your own sake, protecting your own heart. So I was at San Francisco Insight, and I taught there for some time. Uh, but before the Dharma talk, I was there hanging out at their, they have like a tea thing and stuff, and talking to people. Uh, and then I met this one guy who's a friend of a friend, and he said, oh, do you come here much? And I said, well, sometimes, mostly when I'm doing the Dharma talk. And he said, oh, you do Dharma talks here? And I said, yeah, I'm actually talking tonight. And he was very surprised. Like, he didn't expect me to be the Dharma uh, speaker. So he had a different idea in his head, his own mandala, about who should be a Dharma teacher, right? It wasn't, it wasn't working for him. So, um, <laughs> so he was like, really? It's such an honor to teach at San Francisco Insight. And I said, yeah, it's an honor. Um, you know, it's an honor to serve the Dharma. I do this pretty often now. Uh, and it's, it still wasn't syncing with his idea. Like, I wasn't being sort of grovelly enough, I think, um, for him. So he said, well, you know, the last time I was here, I saw, and he named some other uh, much more famous teacher than me. And he said, and he enthralled us, and I'm sure you're going to do the same. Right? Uh, so again, it's sort of like heckling the Dharma teach, not, not a recommended <laughs> karmic activity. Right? And uh, I actually saw, you know, my mind um, saw that and actually just sort of stepped around it. You know, and I said, well, I guess we'll see. Right? And... Uh, it was really interesting to see, but it was just sort of like walking down the street and seeing a pile of dog shit and stepping out of the way of it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was exactly like this, and this is what you're training your mind to do as metta, is to know, like, what is metta and what is not metta, and you do not need to step in that, right? <laughs> you do not need to step in that, and that left it with him. So that was his own projections, that was his own ideas. Um, you know, and I actually feel like my... You know, people are laughing a lot in this talk, but my job is not actually to enthrall people. You know, my job is to teach the Dharma. So his projection of what his idea was, like, that's on, all on him. Uh, and that person might never know who I am, you know, but I, I know who I am. And that comes through, too, with the metta. It's like the confidence, you know, that confidence from practice. So then you don't need to be harmed by people saying different things or doing different things. You know, you have that stability, Uh, that integrity, that confidence from that. So I've had also some great role models in this, and uh, I've been engaged in a lot of different social justice movements in my life. Uh, My day job before this was doing work with um, community nonprofits and uh, a lot of group facilitation and I did some corporate consulting work before, but a lot of sort of group stuff. And I met some really great, inspiring people through this, um, people who are doing really important work to change the world and doing it in such a beautiful way that inspires me. So I'll tell you the story of one of these people uh, among my, my favorite um, groups that I worked with. This is the Tule Lake Preservation Project. 
So there's a group of older uh, Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II in far, far corner of Northern California, Tule Lake. So for those who don't know about this history, um, as I didn't before I moved to California, um, because they didn't actually teach it on the East Coast when I grew up, uh, during World War II, the U.S. government uh, basically found all people of Japanese descent, second generation, third generation, fourth generation, didn't matter, uh, uprooted them from their homes, uh, moved them first to sort of racetracks or miscellaneous places, and then during the duration of the war placed them in internment camps, so basically prison camps, uh, forced them to farm the land. At the end of the war, they were basically released, but their possessions had pretty much been taken by other people. And then that land that they had farmed was given to the returning GIs, the veterans, uh, as plots for them to begin their life again. So uh, there was a group of people, older Japanese Americans, who had been in the internment camp who basically wanted this period of time not to be forgotten. And they wanted to create a historical monument on the site. So in order to do that, they actually had to get the buy-in of the people in the town who were the descendants of, or actually the veterans who had been given that land, who had a very different view about what happened during the war. And I loved these uh, activists who I went with. So they were in their 80s, and uh, such great, joyful people. So there's an urgency with which they were pursuing their um, activity because you know they knew they were going to die soon, and they were holding these stories, and it was important to them. But still, they were doing it with such love and respect. Uh, I feel like I learned so much from them. So I went on a road trip with them up there to the uh, small town in order to facilitate a meeting of the town people to tell them about the idea of this project and basically to try to get people on board. Uh, because if people were going to come to visit this historical monument, they would stay in the town, they would get food in the town, the people who worked at the historical monument would be from the town, so they had to get buy-in. So I made a road trip up there. Uh, Jimmy Yamaichi, who was in his 80s, and his wife Eiko, and then Hiroshi, uh, who was in his 60s. And uh, I felt like they were like, they were like my friends who are all activists, minus the sexual drama that goes on <laughs> in your younger years. I was like, oh, that's great. They're you know, so uh, just focused, and uh, it was very helpful. So we went there to this um, town, and uh, the town is only about 1,000 people. And uh, the meeting was in the community hall slash high school gym, which is called the Honker, because it's like these birds migrate above. Um, we had a few allies in the town. So the, there was a head of a museum and a couple people in the school who were allies who helped get people there. So we actually had an amazing turnout for the meeting. So in a town of like 900,000 people, we had 150 people come to the meeting. Uh, significant percentage. You know, partly, possibly, because there was nothing going on in the small town, too. Um, but they came, and they stayed, and they listened, and we did a slideshow, and uh, they talked about their time in the camp and showed pictures of themselves, and, you know, very compelling story. So in the end, they did question and answers, and um, I remember one older lady raised her hand, and she was very angry, and she said... Uh, you know, you're talking about, you're complaining so much, and, you know, uh, I lived through World War II, and we had all these butter shortages during the war. You know. And she said this seriously, like this was her thing. And uh, I was kind of stunned that she would bring this up in comparison to having been ripped from your home and 
basically imprisoned for many years. And I was so impressed by Jimmy, uh, who just said very naturally, like, you know, things were difficult for many of us during the war. So he didn't have to make his suffering more or less than hers. You know, he just very naturally and gracefully uh, acknowledged what she was saying. So this is a brilliant example of, of working with love. You know, he wasn't like, here's my mandala and you have to buy it, right? And I'm not buying your mandala at all, <laughs> you know? It's like, oh yeah, I can see that. Like, I can see your, your perspective and uh, give some sympathy to that too. And actually it ended up being a very successful meeting. We had a lot of people sign up to be on some support committee and then uh, some years later it was actually discla- declared a historical monument. So why not be angry? Why not be angry? So pragmatically speaking, the Buddha also talked about, you know, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one that gets burned. So it's not just like a nicey, nice spiritual idea about what to do. It actually is very pragmatic. You know, when you understand the way things work uh, on the level of the mind. So many uh, famous activists also have said this. So Nelson Mandela, imprisoned for 27 years, said, you will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you will through acts of retribution. Or uh, famously, uh, he said this great quote, resentment is like drinking poison and thinking it will kill your enemies. So think about that in the holding of a grudge. The unenlightened mind thinks the best strategy for keeping ourselves safe and happy is to harbor hatred, to harbor this grudge. I will protect myself by remembering things that you have done and hate you for it. And meanwhile, the person that it's harming most is yourself. We can have compassion when we see that pattern because it really is just the not grown-up part of ourselves, you know, like the, the not awakened part reacting in the world, sort of in the way it best knows how, which is not really that good a way, but still, you know, we can sort of hold it with kindness. Aung San Suu Kyi also, Burmese activist who was also in house arrest for uh, 15 years, basically said, you know, I'm against the concept of revenge, but accountability is linked to courage, and I like courage. So metta is part of developing courage. The work that we're doing here is like fortifying our hearts, fortifying our hearts and minds. We're helping ourselves grow up in this way. So some people have uh, mentioned as they start practicing in this area of the difficult person or the enemy, um, also something that they learn is that sometimes they find themselves in that outer ring. So themselves, you yourself can be the hardest person to send metta to. You find yourself marooned out in that area with the sea monsters and everything. And you have fear of connecting with yourself, hostility towards some dimension of yourself. So 
So in this way too, it's helpful to continue this practice, to recognize that even if it surprises you or disappoints you. And see the metta practice as a way of actually healing the fragmentation that we otherwise hold. The fragmentation that we create in our world and the fragmentation that we have created in ourselves. From the wisdom side of things also, we can see that life is actually so poignant and fragile. You know, in the beginning I was telling you about the different mandalas of our lives, of grade school and middle school and so on. And you know, Our lives have passed so quickly like that. You see people in different stages of life and you think like, oh, uh, little kids who really want to grow up and be bigger. It's like, oh, just be where you are now. Like, it's going to happen soon enough. You know, it's going to happen and then you'll be in the next thing. You know, but four is good right now. Like, you know, be with four, right? So recognizing the poignancy of our life, what is the better response that we can have besides metta? As an activist also, uh, I remember when I was doing a lot of work going to hear various speakers and um, noticing which speakers I was more drawn to. And I noticed this at rallies too, at rallies and marches. And I remember meeting one particular guy who had been really involved in LGBT activism and in some ways very effective. Um, but he actually was a very, very bitter and angry guy. And I remember thinking, like, this is not who I want to be when I grow up. I want to affect change in the world. I can see all these things that need improving, but I don't want to turn out like that. Like, is there another way? And the answer is there is. So from the examples of people like Jimmy, who I mentioned in my story, from these famous people like Nelson Mandela, from Aung San Suu Kyi, and then even from you and me. So paying attention in the world to the ways in which even in very small conflicts, when the mandala arises, the difficult person arises, whether that's yourself or other, we can have a different response than actually drinking the poison of hatred and resentment. It's possible to train our mind for that to come up more and more naturally, and also to do the intentional training when we know we're in the moment of conflict to call that up too. So this work is so important, you know, both for ourselves as well as for our communities, for the world, for the planet. There's so much work that needs to be done. And doing it with a heart of love enables that work to be done in so much a better way. So we can all become the people that we want to grow up to be. And we can have the world that we want to grow into, too. So I'll leave you with one more uh, wisdom uh, angle that I like around this, this idea of the, the enemy and being able to meet the enemy with love. Like, why should we do that? Or how is that possible? So this is related to the idea of uh, not self or no, non-solidity of self. So there's a, a Taoist sage called Chuang Tzu. And he gave the metaphor of the empty boat. So if you're on a, a pond and a boat comes towards you and it's just being moved by the waves and the wind and it knocks into your boat, you, know, you just push it away right, with your oar and then you keep going. 
But if you're on the pond and someone is in the boat and it bumps into you, then you might get bad at, mad at the boat, right? At the person and you yell at them like, hey, why do you row into me? Can't you watch where you're going, right? Like the guy with the car, like yelling at me, getting really mad at, about that. So from the teachings, if we pay attention to who we really are and what is really true, there is this level of emptiness. There is a non-solidity of who we are and who others are. In each moment, there's a different arising. So when we ourselves are engaged in patterns of unskillful behavior, when we're engaged in hostility, anger, fear, we are playing out these patterns. We're not seeing who we really are. So all of us are actually these empty boats in that way. So more we can see this about the quote-unquote enemy, the difficult person, and actually then regard that with kindness, and you know, not have to react with hatred, and the more free we can be. And also the more that we can realize ourselves, the emptiness of our own boat, then there's nothing to harm then. There's no one who can attack, be attacked. So a famous Zen story is that uh, there's a bandit who's going about the town, scaring everyone away. He goes through the town, everyone's running away, and then he gets to the Zen monastery and there's one monk sitting there. And the monk said, the, the bandit says to the monk, like, what are you doing still sitting there? You know, I'm the one who will run through you with the sword, with the blink of an eye, without, without worrying about it. And the monk says, don't you know I'm the one who can be run through in the blink of an eye? <laughs> so may we all achieve that level of awareness of who we truly are. Thank you. So we'll just sit together for a moment. should abide with a heart imbued with loving kindness, vast, sublime, and immeasurable like the sky, wishing well to all beings everywhere. May all beings be safe from harm. May all beings be happy and healthy. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.